Our speaker today is Nate Wilson, Pastor Chuck Wilson's son. All right, so today we're going to be talking about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. And I titled today's sermon, uh, Good Grief. And um, why? Because if you've ever watched Charlie Brown, you know that's like his iconic line is good grief. And I was like, oh, that'd be interesting. So that's why I titled it Good Grief. And we're going to be in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, um, verses 10 and 11. I actually don't know what page it is in the Bible. Sorry, uh, I didn't check. But um, before we do that, I'm going to share a story about uh, Tyler Humphreys and I. And as, we, as later in the sermon, as we begin to talk about godly and worldly sorrow, I just want you to think, uh, remember the story I tell now and think what we did and how it relates to the two sorrows I'll talk about today. Um, so... Tyler and I, when we uh, were growing up, and Josh and Ian also, I don't know if you remember the Humphreys, they used to go to this church uh, for many years, and uh, when Tyler and I were growing up, we were best friends, we'd like do everything together, and uh, this one time, we, all right, first I have to give you some back, background, we, we had an obsession with like Star Wars growing up, we always used to watch the movies at his house because my parents didn't let me watch them, so I'd just go to Tyler's house and we'd watch them there, and uh, we love Star Wars. We'd like always play these video games, um, like uh, Star Wars Battlefront. None of you probably know what that is, but Josh and Ian do, and we'd always play. And um, one time we were playing at our house, and we were playing during the women's Bible study on Wednesdays um, when uh, my mom would have everybody over, and Mrs. Humphreys would go, so Tyler and Ian would come. And just uh, just so you know how passionate we were, we were about Star Wars, one time. Uh, Tyler beat Ian in the video game, and Ian was just so angry. He picked up Tyler and threw him into our closet door and broke it, and it was like the craziest thing. And so, like, obviously, we're really passionate about it. So this one time, Tyler got these BB guns, um, and we were like, dude, like, let's go play Star Wars in the woods. So we, we got these two BB guns, and Mr. Humphreys, before we go out, I don't know if you remember their house, but when they would host church picnics, they, you know, they have the pool, and they have the big hill, and at the bottom of the hill is their playground, and then there's the playhouse, the playhouse in the corner, I don't know if you remember that before going into the woods, and before we went out to play with these BB guns, Mr. Humphreys was like, do not shoot any of the windows on the playhouse, or you're going to pay to fix them, and we we're like, okay, like, we're just going to avoid the playhouse, but you know, that feeling you get when you're told not to do something, you just really want to do it. Well, we had that feeling, but we were like, we're not going to do it, we're not going to do it. So we were out in the woods, like, you know, doing our little Star Wars thing, like shooting random stuff. We wouldn't, like, shoot each other because we'd seriously get hurt. These, these were, like, real deal BB guns. We'd try to shoot squirrels and stuff. We'd never kill anything. Thank goodness our aim was terrible. But it was just bad enough to the point where we actually shot the, the playhouse. We were, we were walking in. We were, we were done with the BB guns, and we're walking back, and we're going up the hill, and we're walking by the playhouse, and we look over, and on the top window, it's just cracked, and there are all these little holes from the BB guns in them. And Tyler's like, oh, my gosh, my dad's going to kill me. And I'm like, yeah, he's going to kill you. And then, um, and, and of course, me being the logical person I was, I was like, Tyler, we've already shot one window. We're already going to get in trouble. Let's just keep shooting at it. So we go to the top of the hill, 
And we have our BB guns. We just start unloading on the playhouse, just firing as many shots as we can. And then we go back and look at it. And not only did we crack one window, but we cracked the other two also. And then we were like, do we tell your dad? And he was like, absolutely not. He's never going to find out. He'll never see it. And we're like, okay, we made a promise. We're not going to tell anybody what we did. And a few weeks later, like, time goes by, weeks go by, months go by, and I'm over at his house, and we're playing video games in his basement. And we're playing Star Wars, obviously. And Mr. Humphreys is out mowing the lawn, and he's mowing, and we're playing video games, and we can hear the lawnmower going. And then it just stops. And we're playing video games, and we, we hear the mower stop, and we look at each other. And Mr. Humphreys is like, what? What is this? And then we're like, oh, crap. He knows. And Mr. Humphreys comes running up to the glass door. And he, I don't know if you remember their basement. There's the glass door, and it sees, you can see their whole basement. And he's standing there like this at the window. And me and Tyler are looking over, and we're like, all right, we're done. And he's like, you guys are going to pay to fix this whole thing. You're in so much trouble. And I, and I was like, I'm sure like, my parents will find out. They won't tell him. But, of course, they were talking. And my parents found out. And it was like this whole big thing because we broke their window. And just keep that in mind. Just keep that story in mind as I, as I go through uh, and talk about the two types of sorrows we're going to be looking at today. Because we obviously evidently show one of them. And I think you'll see which one we show as I talk about it. Um, so I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 to 11, and then we'll go from there. And it says, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So um, in order to get a better understanding of this passage, I think we have to look at the context, and that's looking at the relationship between Paul and the Corinth church. And uh, if you don't know, Paul actually wrote four letters to the Corinthian church. We only have two of them, and he, there's the first one, uh, the first letter, which we don't have and that, I guess, is we don't have it. We'll just call it like uh, Corinthians A, the letter Corinthians A. We do not have that one. Then there's the second letter, which we do have, and that's 1 Corinthians, and that's in our Bibles. And then there's also, also a third letter, which we do not have, and we'll call that letter Corinthians B. That uh, we, do not, we don't have, so we have the fourth letter, the final letter, and that's the one we're looking at, 2 Corinthians. And Paul visited the Corinth church two or three times, and I don't know if you've read these letters, but 1 Corinthians is a pretty sharp rebuke of the Corinth church. Uh, just to give you an example of some of the things they were doing, um, they, would, they constantly quarreled. There, there was a lot of division going on in the church. It wasn't just like arguing and fighting, but it was to the point where there was division and there was, um, the church was splintering, uh, you could say. And then they were also uh, sexually immoral. Um, I don't know if you remember in 1 Corinthians 5, there's actually a case where one of the, the people there is sleeping with his stepmother. And it's not just the, the sin that they're doing, but they also boast in it. They, they frequently are boasting in it. There's like no, no conviction or sorrow for their sin. And then the last thing they were doing is during communion, um, they would be getting drunk. So 
Uh, obviously, like this church has a lot of problems, and I would not recommend if there was one around now to go to it. But so that that and then in Paul's letters, he's constantly rebuking them frequently. And he in the third letter, the third letter, the one before this one, he just really goes at them really hard. He he says when he wrote it that he when he sent it, he gave it to Timothy, and Timothy sent it to the Corinthian church. And he says, right when I gave it to him, I immediately felt regret. This is Paul talking. He says, I felt regret. I said, I wish I didn't send it because he felt like he was too harsh to them. And then Timothy goes, gives the letter to the Corinthian church, and he hangs out there and he sees the response from the letter. And he, and he sees that some people have repented and others haven't. There's two groups of people. Most people repented. Others did not. They changed their ways. Some did. Mo- most did. Some did not. And that's, where we're, that's the point where we're at right here now in 2 Corinthians. Is He says there are two responses Paul talks about. There were people who responded with a godly sorrow, and there were people who responded with a worldly sorrow. And we're going to get into what that godly sorrow looks like, and Paul talks about it here, and then we're going to get into what worldly sorrow looks like. So, when... When we're looking at godly sorrow and worldly sorrow, there are, there are two big differences between godly and worldly sorrow. The first is what, hap- what the fruit of the sorrow is. What the fruit of the sorrow is. So we see that godly sorrow's fruit, Paul talks about, and we're going to get into it later, and then worldly sorrow's fruit, we're also going to get into it later. But for now, the big difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is this. Godly sorrow focuses on God, and worldly sorrow focuses on yourself. And as we know from the context, we see that this is sorrow specifically in response to sin. It's sorrow in response to sin. It's not a natural sorrow. Maybe you feel when uh, you hurt yourself, you're injured, and you feel sorry about that. Or maybe a loved one passes away, and you feel sorrow. Or maybe you're in financial struggle, and you experience sorrow. That's not the sorrow we're talking about. We're specifically talking about sorrow in response to sin, in response to our sin. So, we're going to start with godly sorrow first. And remember what I said, it focuses on God. God is the the object of our sorrow. And what do I mean by that? Well, godly sorrow, it's a deep pain, a deep sorrow. And it's, it's a sorrow because we chose sin over God. We chose temptation over obedience. We chose the desires of our flesh rather than the desire of our spirit. And that's the big thing with godly sorrow is that it's not, it's not how our sin affects us, but it's how it offends God. It's not, oh, our, our, my, I sinned and now it brought pain on me and now I'm going to feel sorry for myself. No, I offended God with my sin and I feel sorrow in that way. And I think the best example of this is David in the Bible um, when the prophet Nathan comes before him and you know, he rebukes him for what? His sin with Bathsheba. And David, in Psalm 51, he talks about his experience after Nathan came to him and rebukes him. And this is what he says in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. So you see with David, what is the big thing? He he immediately says, I've sinned against you and you alone, God. And that is the source of his sorrow. Why is he sorry? 
because he sinned before God, and he's really that that's where the sorrow comes from. The sorrow isn't in, oh, I brought pain to myself. Yeah, it's really easy. Anybody can feel sorrow when the pain is brought on themselves, but do you feel sorrow when your pain brings when your sin brings pain to God? And that brings us to ourselves. Have you guys ever mourned over your sin? Have you ever felt sorrow for anything you've done? For the sin that you've committed? Well, before we go any further and look at the fruit of godly sorrow, I just want to fix, I think, three errors that we think with godly sorrow. The first is that godly sorrow is the, the same as repentance. That sorrow is the same as repentance. And well, what do I mean by that? Well, we see in the passage back in 2 Corinthians 7.10, Paul says, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And I think in a common error in our culture, and maybe just for Christians, is that we, we tend to fuse sorrow and repentance as being the same thing. We feel sorrow of mind, and we think, oh, that's repentance because I felt bad about my sin. I've repented of it. But it's not true. Sorrow precedes repentance always. Sorrow precedes repentance, as we see it. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. And I think, and I know this for myself, we get in, I think when we just do sorrow of mind, we feel sorrow of mind, but we never actually repent. Well, what is repentance? It's turning from sin unto God. And remember that because I'll talk about it later, but sorrow of mind is just, I feel sorry about my sin, and like, I swear I've changed, I'm never going to do it again. And you feel really bad about it, but what ends up happening? You end up doing it again. And I call it the sin cycle. That's how I think of it, the cycle of sin. What we do is we, we sin. We feel really bad about it. We have the sorrow, but we, we don't change in any way. We just we, we promise change. We think we're going to change. And then what do we do? We just sin again, and it's just this endless cycle. We say, oh, God's changed me this time. It's for real. I'm never going to go back to my old ways. And what happens? We go right back to our sin. It's sorrow of mind, but it's not repentance. And it's like, and just to give you a little analogy, it's like a moth that would, it goes to the, to the light. It, when a moth is attracted to the lamp, to the light, a moth will go to the light, and it'll, it'll go there, and then it'll burn itself, and it'll fly away, and it'll, it'll feel even sorry that it, it was injured, that it, 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 pain was inflicted upon it. But what happens is, It'll, it'll, what, what does a moth end up doing every time it goes to the light and it flies away? What do they always do? The moth comes right back to the light. And that's what it is with sorrow of mind, with repentance. When we think, okay, sorrow, we feel sorry for our sin, I've repented of it, I'm not going to do it again. We feel sorry, but we end up always going back to it. And uh, there's a proverb that I really like that I think really exemplifies this in a great way. It's Proverbs 26, verse 11. And it says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. And I think that gives, you a, uh, gives us a really good picture of what, how disgusting our sin is like and what it's like when we go back to it. It's like a dog when it throws up and it goes back to eat its vomit. You're like, that is absolutely disgusting. But that's what it looks like when we sin. We know how bad it is. We know how evil it is. It looks so bad and it's so gross. But what do we end up always doing? We go back to it. We repeat our folly, we repeat our sin, and it's like a dog that eats its vomit. That's us with sin. It's, it's repulsive, and we know it, but when the desire strikes, when the temptation comes, and we give in, that's what we're doing. 
Now, there's another error, I think, with godly sorrow that we fall into, and that is with salvation. I think a lot of times when we think of salvation, we, we think of the result of it, which is, yes, we're saved from hell, and we all know that, and that's what salvation is. That's the result of our salvation. But there's so much more to it, and I think we miss that. And it's that not only does salvation save us from hell, but it also saves us from our sin. It saves us from our sin. Matthew one twenty one says, She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And what that means is when we repent, when we turn from sin unto God, now we finally have the freedom. We finally have the choice to choose between sin and obedience. We, are not, we, we don't have to be stuck in our sin any longer. We can choose between receiving grace or choosing our sin. We don't have to be stuck in our sin. And that's what I think what Paul means back in 2 Corinthians 7 when he says, Godly sorrow leaves no regret. What, what does it mean by that? Well, you never want to be, with godly sorrow, you never want to be stuck in sorrow forever. That's not the point. The point of sorrow is it brings us to repentance. And repentance is not just a one-time thing where once we repent of our sins, we're saved, and we never have to repent again. No. In fact, I would say that when we become Christians, godly sorrow is not, you know, we're saved and we don't have to experience sorrow anymore because Jesus will always forgive us for our sins and we can continue to sin willfully as long as we want. No. What it is, is I I argue, I would say that as we become Christians and we become more sanctified, what happens? We become more aware of sin in our life that we weren't aware of before. And what does it do? It brings sorrow to us. Why? Because what happened with David, he felt sorrow because he offended God. Because everything we do is almost an offense to God when we sin. It's all, it offends him. And that brings us sorrow as Christians. So, godly sorrow is not a one-time thing. I think it's continuous in all of our lives. It should continue in all of our lives because the more we become aware of sin, we should be more aware, we should, our sorrow should increase. As we become more aware of our sin, our sorrow should become more apparent in our lives. And what is the outcome of when we become more aware of sin? What, is the, what happens with us? What's the outcome when we become more aware of sin? Well, our sorrow increases, but our understanding of grace will increase also. If we look at Luke 7, verse 47, it says, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown, but whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And this is a a point I think that is shown throughout, throughout all of the scriptures, is this exact point, and it's this, that if you... Are, if you are not aware of your sin, you will not understand grace. If you don't know sin, you don't know grace. The passage, this woman, she, she comes to Jesus and she's weeping and she has, uh, she's like rub, rubbing uh, her hair on his like, uh, feet. He's wiping, she's wiping her tears with her hair. And, she, and Jesus says, look at this woman. She has been forgiven of so much. Why? Because she's so aware of her sin. And that's, that is the thing with when we become more aware of our sin, we become more sorrowful, but we're never stuck in our sorrow. Godly sorrow never, 
We're never left there because we bring about repentance that leads to salvation and there's no regret. We're never stuck in our regret with sorrow. We can always move from it. And then that brings us to an even greater understanding of grace because the more aware of our sin we are, the more appealing, the the greater God's grace is in our life. So now we're going to move to the fruit of godly sorrow. And what do I mean by that? This is what godly sorrow produces in our lives. And Paul talks about it in verse 11, and I'm going to read that. We're going to go through each of the things he talks about. And this is what this is what godly sorrow produces in our lives. And this is how you can really tell the difference between godly and worldly sorrow, is what happens after the sorrow. What does the sorrow produce in our life? Does it produce no difference, no, no change, like sorrow of mind? Or does it produce a change in our lives? Well, let's take a look. Paul is now talking about the Corinth church, and we remember their response. They were, they, some responded with a godly sorrow. And that's who he's talking about here in verse 11. We're going to go through and look at this. He says, See what this godly sorrow has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves. So we see in the Corinth church, the people with godly sorrow, they, they received, they had this earnestness and this eagerness to clear themselves. Well, what does that look like? They've, well, they've repented and they've become free from their sin. You know, they, they've sinned and this is their response. They want to let people know that they've, They've been clean from their sin. They've gotten rid of their sin. And they'll do whatever it takes to prove that they are no longer in the sins that they are. It's like, just to give an analogy, it's like if you were on your phone and, like, people caught you doing stuff you shouldn't have been doing on it. And then, you know, you, you have the sorrow for being caught in your sin. You repent of it. And now you come back to those people and you say, you say, hey, look. Like, look through my phone. Like, I want to show you I have not done anything wrong. Like, I've changed. I've repented. I've found God's grace. You, you show them your phone and say, hey, look. Like, I have nothing to hide. I'm not hiding anything from you. I want to prove my innocence to you. And that's what it looks like. There, that, that's, what, that's just one thing what godly sorrow looks like. And then the second thing Paul says is he talks about what indignation. What indignation. And... What that basically means is he's talking about the deep, uh, uh, an anguish, a frustration over allowing the sin to happen, to allow, allowing it to break communion with God. There's, a, there's an anguish we feel. We're just so upset that we've allowed this to happen, and we, we experience anguish, we experience sorrow, and we're just, we wish we didn't do it, but we did it, and we're just frustrated. How could we have allowed this to happen in our lives? And I think a great example of this is Ezra, Ezra 10.1. When Israel, God tells them, do not, he says, do not uh, intermarry with uh, these, these wicked people, the other, other um, tribes, you could say, like the, like the Canaanites, something like that. These groups of people, he says, do not intermarry with them. And what do they do? They intermarry with them, obviously, as Israel does, constantly disobedient. Um, and this is what Ezra 10.1 says, While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around them. They too wept bitterly. And that's what the indignation is. That is what godly sorrow produces. It produces almost a frustration with sin, a deep sorrow for allowing it to happen, for allowing disobedience, to be disobedient to God. You just wish, like, how could I have let that happen? That is what indignation is. And then Paul talks about, he says, what alarm. He says, what alarm. It's almost like a, 
the NASB, NASB version, I think, has a little bit of a better translation. It says, what fear? Well, what is the fear? What's the source of the fear? It's almost, have you heard of the term, like, fear of the Lord? Well, that's what he's talking about here. It's a reverence of God's discipline, because when you sin, you know um, God's discipline will come. It will, it will fall upon you. And I'm going to read Hebrews 12, and this talks about what, what exactly, what is God's uh, discipline? What does it look like in like practical terms? And I'm going to read Hebrews 12:5, and it says, Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for good in order that we may share in his holiness." No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. So we see in the passage, what does it say in verse 9? The discipline, it produces respect. We, we have a respect for the discipline. So what is, what, what is the alarm? What is the fear it's, and the reverence? It's for God's discipline in our lives. And then what does it produce? We respect God. It's not, oh, I'm afraid of God and I, I don't want to talk to him. Like, I need to stay away from him. I need to avoid him. I just need to obey everything so he doesn't harm me. It's not that. It's a respect, a reverence. And at the time, at the time of the discipline, it seems painful. It seems difficult. But what does it produce? A harvest of righteousness. It produces righteousness. And I have a story, uh, a time when uh, I... Uh, my, my mom disciplined me, and I shared this story at youth group, and I just think it, it illustrates the point of uh, fear and reverence. There was a time when I was really young, I, I used to watch Bob the Builder, and there was this one character on the show named Muck, and I, I forget what she exactly did, but I don't know what I was doing, but for some reason that, that morning, I was thinking of words that r- r- um, rhyme with Muck, and I was going... <laughs> I was going through the alphabet, and I started with A, and I was like, that doesn't make sense, not a word. I got to B, oh, buck, yeah, I got to C, not a word. I got to the letter D, duck, I got to E, not a word, I got to the letter F. And my brother Matthew is right there, and I say the F word, and Matthew's like, oh my gosh, nature said the F word, and I hear my mom in the kitchen, what? And she... She runs over to me, and at that time, I felt a lot of fear, because I knew my mom was going to discipline me, and she grabs my ear, and she takes me into the bathroom, and she says, what do you say? I was like, I don't know. I don't even know what word this is. Like, I was just a little kid. I didn't even know anything about it. I just knew I was just rhyming with muck, and then, of course, that happened, and she says, open your mouth, and I'm like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. She says, open your mouth, and she, she finally, like, clenches my jaw open and squirts some soap in my mouth. And I was like, oh, so disgusting. And yeah, at the time, I hated it, and I was so mad at her. But now, 
I think I reflect on it, and yeah, I respect her for it. And what did it produce? Well, I wasn't about to go say the F word again. Uh, I produced a righteousness where I was like, I'm not going to curse. <laughs> because my mom put soap in my mouth. I bet she'd do it now. Um, and so, and I think if we can go back to David and think of his life. After his sin with Bathsheba, he showed a godly sorrow. He repented of his sins. But if you look at David's life after that, it's nowhere near as he was not blessed by God as much, nearly as much as he was before this sin. Yeah, he repented of it, but he still had to deal with God's discipline. Well, what was God's discipline in David's life? Well, for starters, the, the son he bore with Bathsheba when he uh, took her from his, her husband Uriah and then ends up killing him. Um, the son that they have, he passes away. And then what happens is his son Absalom tries to overthrow his kingdom. And then what happens there is he ends up having Joab, his commander, ends up having to kill Absalom, his son. Why? Because he's trying to overthrow his kingdom. He's trying to take David over. And that's not even the end of it. When David crowns Solomon as king, what happens? Adonijah, another one of his sons, is like, no, 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 I'm the king. I'm going to be the king. And he tries to fight Solomon on it, and then what ends up happening with Adonijah, he ends up dying. So we see God's discipline. It was hardship for David, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like he, he experienced sorrow and he repented, but God's discipline will still come on us who sin. And that's what happened with David. His life was nearly not the same as it was when before his sin, after his sin with Bathsheba. Before it was much greater, much better. And then he experienced all the sorrow and pain. Because why? Because he sinned against God. And the next thing Paul talks about in the verse, he talks about a longing. He says there's a longing. What longing? What concern? The longing is to make things right with the offended party. And we see that with David again back in Psalm 51. What was his longing? He desired to make things right with God. Because why? He knew that he sinned against God. His desire was to make things right with him. So... You see the longing, and it's not just a longing, but Paul goes on to say, what concern? What? It's a longing, but it's a zeal. There's an urgency. You want to do it fast. You want to make things right. And it's not just God. We can sin against others, too. You don't want to just, uh, you know, say, all right, I, yeah, I, I hurt you. I'm not going to apologize or anything. No, it's I want to make things right. I'll do whatever it takes to make things right with you, with God or with someone else. And I have another story to help uh, illustrate this point. Uh, Josh and I, when we were uh, really young, I don't know, I don't know what we were doing, but we were we were in the basement. You know, we have all the mattresses in our basement, and we were just like goofing off, messing around. And I had a wiffle ball bat, and Josh was just laying on the mattress, and I was like, Josh, don't move. And I started whacking my wiffle ball bat as hard as I could right next to him as he was laying on the mattress, and we were all just like laughing at like thinking it was so funny. I was like, yo, don't move. I'll hit you. I'll hit you. And I'm just whacking the wiffle ball bat right next to him. And I'm not hitting him. I'm just like, yo, don't move. Don't move. And then eventually, we're like doing this for like 10 minutes. I'm just whacking next to him. Like, I don't, I don't even know why. And then his arm is out like this. And I swing down as hard as I can. And I hit him right in the elbow. And he just starts screaming like, oh, I'm going to kill you, Nate. Like, oh, he's so mad. And we're like little kids. He's so angry with me. And in that moment, I had a real desire to make things right with him so he would not go tell my mom what happened. 
also so he would not beat the crap out of me. I, had, I was like, I need to make things right really fast. And how did I go about doing that? Uh, I ran away crying, scared of him. I hit him with a wiffle ball bat, and I was the one that ran away crying. And um, that was the thing. But I had a real zeal, a real urgency, because I did not want to get in trouble, and I wanted to make things right with him. And I was like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Like, please don't kill me. But I eventually just ran away, and I didn't make things right. But there, there was still that, that zeal, that urgency. I, that there was a longing to make things right. And that, that's the same idea here. And the next thing Paul talks about is there's this readiness to see justice done. And well, what does that mean? Well, going back to God's discipline, or any discipline at all, is we're willing to endure the punishment, no matter how difficult it is, because we recognize that we've sinned against someone, we've sinned against God. We're, we want to see justice done, no matter how painful it is to us. We want to see justice done. We're, we're willing to endure anything, because... We want justice done. We want, we want justice to be served. And that is, that is a, a key difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow as we get into worldly sorrow soon. A key difference is the punishment of our sin. We, want, we are okay with it happening. Godly sorrow, if you experience godly sorrow, you, you almost want it to happen because you want justice to be done. And here's the last thing. Here's the last thing Paul talks about. He says, you, we want you to be innocent in the matter. You said you're innocent in the matter. Well, what does that exactly mean? Is it goes back to that earnestness, that eagerness to prove your innocence. You've, you, want to be, you want to become free of this sin, so you repent of it, and you're, 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 you become guilt-free, and you're, you're truly repentant. You're truly repentant. And well, what does that result in? Well, we, we are not left in regret. Remember what the passage said, godly sorrow leaves no regret. We are not left in regret for our sins. We find sorrow, we find peace in our heart, and we no longer have that regret. And David also, we're going back to David because he's our, he's our example of godly sorrow. Later on in Psalm 51, after he confesses his sin, he goes on to say in Psalm 51:12, Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. We should never be left in sorrow. We should never be left with regret. No, at the end of it, we're going to be left with joy. We want to have joy. Why? Because we recognize God's grace. It's so great. Our sin is so great, but God's grace matches it, and he appeases that sin, and he makes things right, and that's joy. That's the joy of salvation. We're innocent in the matter. It does not leave regret. Now, we're going to move to godly sorrow. And we look at the passage and it says, well, worldly sorrow, what is the, the fruit of worldly sorrow? It leads to death. Well, death in the sense that uh, it doesn't lead to salvation. It's a spiritual death and physical, and it leads, it, does, it leads to death, not salvation. So what is worldly sorrow? Well, it's, it's difficult to define because uh, this is the only passage that talks about it. It's the only time it's mentioned, but it's similar to that of remorse. And the reason I chose to talk about godly sorrow first is because we know what worldly sorrow is by knowing what, by what godly sorrow is not. We know what worldly sorrow is because we know what godly sorrow is not. And I, if you guys remember, at the beginning of what, when I started speaking, I said the big difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow is worldly sorrow focuses on ourself. Godly sorrow focuses on God. And... That's the key difference. Worldly sorrow is only concerned for the consequences of our sin. Someone with a worldly sorrow only cares for how that sin affects himself. Go back to the story of Tyler and I. 
Why were we sorry? Remember what Tyler said when we shot the window? Oh my gosh, my dad is going to kill me. What was the source of his sorrow? Not that we disobeyed his dad, but that his dad was going to punish us. We weren't sorry that we disobeyed his parents and we broke three windows. No, what did we decide to do? What did I decide to do? Let's keep on sinning. Let's keep on shooting the windows. Who cares? And that's the thing with worldly sorrow. It's a disregard. It disregards its effect on others and on God. It doesn't, it doesn't care. We don't care about it with worldly sorrow. It's only how does my sin affect me? How does it bring pain on me? And a really good example of this is Cain in the Old Testament. In Genesis 4, I'm going to read this passage. Right after he kills Abel, his brother, this is what God says. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So what is the the source of his grief, his sorrow? My punishment is more than I can bear. He just killed his brother. He doesn't care about that. What does he care about? The punishment, God's punishment on him. It's too much that he can bear. He, he, he can't stand it. He says, God, I can't do this. This is too much. You have to, it's not fair. You have to make it lighter. He doesn't care that his sin offended God. He doesn't care that he killed his brother. No, what is it? It's, his, it's the punishment for his sin. Now, there's another characteristic of worldly sorrow and that it always requires exposure. The person in their sin, the sorrow in response to their sin, they will not feel sorry for their sin unless it's brought out in public. And that's, that's what we see. The, the, the sin in their life, they're not sorry for their sin. They're sorry that they got caught. It's not enough that God knows their sin. As we see in Hebrews 4.13, everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. No, it's not that the sin... It's not that God knows their sin. It, that doesn't matter. It's, it only matters when other people know their sin. And I think it really shows, what does that show? A fear of man rather than God. It's You fear man more than God. And it's not a sorrow because of the sin. It's sorrow because of a damaged reputation. It's sorrow because, oh, everyone knows I've sinned. And we look at it with Paul and the Corinthians. What were they doing before Paul called them out? If you remember, they were boasting in their sin. They were proud of it. But what is Paul? Paul rebukes them and he says, Hey, no, 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 no. I'm going to hold you to God's standards. You've sinned. And this is sin. And what do they do? Some of them respond with a worldly sorrow. They're like, oh, get out of here. Like, things were fine before you came. We don't need you here. It was, they were angry with him. But most responded with repentance, a godly sorrow. And another great example of this worldly sorrow we're going to see is... Uh, Saul, when Samuel calls him out, and I'm going to read in 1 Samuel 15, but just to give you the context first, Samuel gives a message to Saul. He says, hey, you, you must go destroy the Amicalites. They're your enemy, and they're inflicting, they're attacking you. You need to go deal with them. And he says, when you go, you have to destroy everything. Don't leave anything alive. Don't leave their crops alive. Don't plunder anything. And what do they do? 
they keep stuff alive. Paul, Saul plunders everything, and he, he keeps all the cattle and all the livestock. And Samuel goes, Samuel comes to go see Saul, and Saul sees him coming, and he says, Oh, Samuel, hello. Uh, as you can see, we've obeyed God and all of his commands. And Samuel was like, Oh, really? Then why am I hearing sheep and goats? And he's like, Oh, well, some of us decided that we didn't want to kill all of the livestock because we wanted to make burnt, offer, burnt sacrifices to the Lord, offerings to the Lord. And Samuel's like, uh, no, God said to destroy everything. And Saul, he's like, you've disobeyed the Lord. And Saul's like, no, I didn't. I obeyed God. We're going to make sacrifices to him. And then Samuel, listen. So listen to this. Listen to what Samuel says now. We're going to pick it up here. And Samuel replied, the Lord, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as, as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So look at the punishment. What's the punishment? Saul's rejected now as king. Now look at what Saul says. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men and I gave in to them. He says, now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that we may worship the Lord. So we see with Saul, what, what drove him to his sorrow? He's not going to be king anymore. Someone's going to come and take it from him. And then, so now what is Saul trying to do? He's trying to save face. He says, all right, well, Samuel, come back and worship with me so... I'll be forgiven of my sins. But what does Samuel say? I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And look how desperate Saul becomes. He says, as Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and tore it. Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned. And here's the other thing. Remember the two, the two characteristics of worldly sorrow? It focuses on self and it requires exposure. And why is it sorrowful? Because of damaged reputation. Look at what Saul says. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with him and Saul worshiped the Lord. What do we see? Why does Saul want Samuel to come worship with him? He wants to be honored before the elders again. He wants his reputation restored. Because he sinned, Samuel calls him out in front of others. What does he want? He wants restoration in front of other people. He, his worldly sorrow is not, his sorrow is not because of his sin. His sorrow is because, oh crap, everyone knows I'm not obeying the Lord. I'm not a great king. Now, We've talked about worldly sorrow. We've talked about godly sorrow. We've talked about the fruit of godly sorrow. Now we're going to talk about the fruit of worldly sorrow. And what is the fruit of worldly sorrow? Well, remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. What does godly sorrow do? It leaves no regret. What does worldly sorrow do? It leaves regret and guilt. Why? Because remember what I talked about? They never experience God's grace. They never get to that point where... David is where they experience restoration of the heart. They experience joy because their sins have been forgiven. No, their sins aren't forgiven, and they're stuck in their regret, and they're stuck in their guilt. And the best example of this in the Bible is Judas. I'm not going to read anything from there, but we all know the story of Judas. He betrays Jesus, 
And he gets this reward for betraying Jesus. And what does he feel? He doesn't feel good. He feels regret. He feels pain. And he feels sorrow. And what did, it drove him eventually to suicide. Why? Because he, he couldn't repent of the sin. He couldn't get over the guilt of his sin. And the same is the same with Esau. I'm not going to get into it, but if you remember Esau, in Hebrews it says he sought for repentance with tears, but he never found it. Why? It was remorse, regret. And I think the world today has an interesting response to regret. The regret Judas felt for his sin, the sorrow. And I think instead of turning to God, what the world has done is it's become therapeutic. And what I mean by that is this, this guy, he coined the phrase, this guy named Philip Reif, he was a sociologist, and he, he coined this term, the therapeutic turn, and basically what it is, is he argues, and he turns out to be right, this was back in the mid-1960s, he wrote this, and he was like predicting where our culture was going, and he was saying, man is going to shift, their goal in life is going to shift. The goal in life is to be happy, that's going to be man's goal now. They're going, to become, they're going to want to become happy. The problem isn't going to be man is not going to re- realize their sickness. No, this is what's going to happen. And I'm quoting here. He says, man is now no longer born to be saved, but they're born to be pleased. Man doesn't need to be saved. They just need to be happy. So think of it with sorrow and guilt. If you're feeling sorrow and guilt, the problem's not you. The problem is the fact external factors around you. Anything that causes negative feelings upon you, you need to get away from it. Get away from it. Don't go near it. You're not born. There's nothing wrong with you. You just need to be happy. Express yourself in any way whatsoever. And there, you, there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And if you feel guilt, if you feel sorrow, if you feel regret, it's not your fault. It's because the culture's conditioned you to feel this way. It's not you. So how do you think that relates with church? Well, if you're up here preaching repentance, well, what do I need to be repentant of? There's something wrong with me. And you're making me feel sorrow for my actions. So what am I going to do? I'm going to leave church. I'm not going to come here. And that's the thing. The, The church now has become the enemy here. And what else is the enemy? Well, Christian rhetoric. You don't mention sin because none of us are sinners. There's nothing wrong with us. And that's how the world is responding to, this, to the sorrow, to the regret, to the guilt. It's pushing it away. It's saying, I, don't, they're, they're, I shouldn't be feeling that. It's caused because of church. It's caused by external factors. The culture is making me feel this way. There's nothing wrong with what I'm doing. I think it's penetrated the churches a little bit. In the sense that they will now, I think we see a lot with um, successful churches, not maybe not even successful, but just churches in general, is that uh, there's, there's a push for not really talking about sin. We're not trying to offend anybody. What we're trying to do is get people in. So what we're going to do is not offend anybody by not talking about sin. We're just not going to mention it. We're just going to focus on God's mercy and grace. And it's only going to be God's mercy and grace and there's going to be nothing else. We're not going to talk about sin. We're not going to talk about repentance. It's just God's mercy and grace. You have faith. You're going to be saved. And what's happened, I think it's developed a shallow Christianity, almost a shell of what biblical Christianity is. Because it's created, I think, Christians in this culture where what do we do? We sin willfully. 
we sinned with no end. It's like a dog's vomit. It repeats, a man repeats his folly. We just keep going back to our sin, back to our sin. And we're like, oh, it's fine. Uh, we don't need to be, uh, it's like God will forgive us no matter what we do. We can keep willfully sinning because God will forgive us. And what's happening is the Bible, what, what's going on is what makes the Bible so beautiful, what makes it so great is when you talk about it and you speak about it in proportion. You can't, if you overemphasize one point of scripture, then it's, it's, not a, it's really dangerous. If you only focus on mercy and grace, what happens, you create what's happening now where people can just keep sinning and they'll willfully sin and they'll think, nothing's going to happen to me, God will forgive me. But what do we know between the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow? Well, godly sorrow brings about repentance. It brings about change. What is repentance? Turning from sin unto God. How can we do that? Well, we have to recognize we're sinful first. And how do we turn, how, what, what marks that change? Well, as we see in the passage, repentance precedes salvation. Godly sorrow brings about repentance. Repentance leads to salvation. So repentance is necessary. Faith and repentance for salvation. It's, it's like two sides of the same coin. You know, like you, you have faith, and, but when you have faith, you're, you're naturally going to recognize your sin. And you're going to want to turn from it. And how, how can we turn from our sin? Well, when you're indwelt with the Holy Spirit, it's a battle between flesh and spirit. It's a battle of desire. And Paul talks about this, talks about people who willfully sin just because they think, it's great, God will forgive me. And he talks about it in Romans 6.1. He says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And so we see, obviously, there has to be a turning from sin unto God. There has to be a repentance. And another problem I think we have when, with the world and it's turning from worldly, it's turning to, when it turns away from the sorrow and guilt regret of sin, what it's doing is it's making people think they don't need to be really forgiven of anything because they're not that bad. Jesus loves me. I love myself. This is great. You know, that I can do no wrong, and even if I do do wrong, it's not even a big deal. God will forgive me. And I think it goes back to what the, the woman, what Jesus said about the woman. Why, why did she love much? Because she was forgiven much. Mark 2.17 says, On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Recognition of sin brings about sorrow, which leads to repentance, which brings about salvation. It's recognition of your sin. And you might be thinking, oh, like, I'm not that much of a sinner, but the irony is all of us are really sinful, and all of us have been forgiven of much. It's just, do we realize it? Do we recognize it? You know, all of us could be the woman, you know, she was forgiven much, therefore she loved much. We could all feel that. We just, it's just recognition of our sin. Now, let's look at, this will be the last thing I talk about, and let's look at our lives. Have you experienced godly sorrow? Or has it just been worldly sorrow? Have you been freed from the guilt and regret of sin? Who are you in these stories? Are you the Corinth church? Are you people who have unconfessed sin in your life? but you don't want to deal with it 
Or are you Paul or the prophet Nathan? Are you someone who needs to confront another in sin? Or maybe that person you need to confront is you. And maybe you're stuck in sin and you need to confess it. And you need accountability and you're looking for accountability. When we look at all the examples of of the, the godly sorrow, of the sorrow in these passages, what is the remedy for their sin? In all the cases, it's confrontation, accountability from others. It's carrying each other's burdens. What, it's Paul calling out the Corinth church. What did that do? It led some to godly sorrow. What happened when um, Samuel called out Saul? He felt sorrow, but it was godly sorrow. You can think of God and Jonah. When God calls out Jonah on the boat, it brings about sorrow in his life. And that's what we see. Paul calling out the Corinthians. It's the prophet Nathan calling out David. And that's the big thing. If you're stuck in sin, if you're stuck in the cycle of sin, you sin, you feel bad, you say you'll change, you promise God's changed me this time, I'll never be the same. But then you go back to that sin. If you are in the sin cycle, if you are a dog going back to its vomit, if that's you, what you need to do is confess your sin. You need to confess it first to God and then repent of it. And if you're struggling, you need to talk to somebody, talk to a close friend, you need accountability. Because where, is, where, does power, where does the power of sin lie in most cases, especially in our culture? In secrecy. In the secrecy of our sins, that's where the power lies. It's hiding it from others. It's being discreet about it so no one knows about it. And then you can never change. You don't want to change. You, you can't change because you think you can deal with it on your own. But really, you need somebody else. And that's what we see in James 5. James 5.16, this is what it says. It says, Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And then a few verses down, James goes on to say, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover a multitude of sins. So what is it? It's carrying each other's burdens. And it it really essentially goes back to that uh, earnestness and eagerness to prove innocent before others and before God. How much are you willing to deal with your sin? Let's look at let's look at David. How much was he willing to deal with his sin? He confessed it before God. And if you'll notice when he sinned, he would, he was weeping and he wouldn't eat for days. He went days without eating. He was so distraught about his sin that it brought, him, it, it, it brought him to the point where he was able to deal with it. He couldn't deal with it without the prophet Nathan. No, Nathan had to reveal it to him. How he was blind to that sin, I don't know. But we're all blind to sin. And how did he deal with it? It took the prophet Nathan. How did the Corinthians church deal with their sin, their sexual immorality, their drinking and communion, their quarreling? Paul. It took Paul to call them out. And you may be saying, oh, I, I can't confess my sin to another. Like, I'll just never get rid of this sin and it goes back to how much are you willing to be proven innocent? Like how much do you want to become innocent? How much do you want to receive God's grace? And I remember Dave, when I think, I think this story is from Dave. I'm not exactly sure. But he shared this story one time when he was preaching here. And it was about this guy who uh, was dating this girl. And, but he also was addicted to porn. And 
as the as his relationship progressed with his girlfriend and it became more serious, he was like thinking, "All right, I really need to deal with this." And he's like, "I need to get this out of my life." And he's like, "I need to confess it." So he talked to this person and he 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 decided he came up with a solution. And he decided uh, to put this this thing on. It's called Covenant Eyes, where whenever he watches porn, like, you know, there'll be someone who can see it. And the person he chose to see whenever he looks at porn is his girlfriend's dad. So every time he looks at it, his girlfriend's dad will know about it. And that's how far he was willing to go to deal with his sin. And that's what it comes back to you. How how much are we willing to get rid of sin in our life? How much are we willing? To just rid of, to get rid of it. You know, do we desire obedience or do we desire sin? It's a battle between the spirit and flesh. It's a battle. It's a battle between the desires of our flesh and the desires of the spirit. The, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So, to close, I just want you to think, if you, have you ever really experienced genuine godly sorrow? Or is it worldly sorrow, a sorrow of mind where you've never actually repented of your sins? Or is it a godly sorrow where you found freedom, you're, you're, you're not stuck in regret, you found freedom of grace. You found the grace and mercy of God and you found that freedom. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this time together. I thank you for... Gathering us here together. And I pray for all of us here together, for those who maybe have never experienced God's mercy and grace and they still feel the weight of their sin. That you can find freedom in God's grace and His mercy. You can find freedom from that guilt. You don't have to push it away or pretend like it's not there, but you can find freedom in God's mercy and grace through repentance, or repentance over sin through faith in God, through faith in what He's done. And I pray for those of us who are Christians and maybe we aren't dealing with the sin in our life. I pray that we are able to muster up the courage and the strength to confess and be, and be held accountable before others. And that we can deal with the sin in our life and truly experience the grace and freedom of God. And then I pray for those who maybe are in a difficult situation where they know of a friend in sin, a brother or a sister in Christ in sin, and that they have to do the very difficult thing of calling, calling them out or confronting them, keeping them accountable. God, I just pray for the courage in that situation. And I thank you for that you've sent your son Jesus to die on the cross for all of our sins, that we can even find freedom, we can even find grace in our sin, that even though we've been so lost and sin is so disgusting, as you've described it, it's like, it's like a dog going back to its vomit, God. That's what sin looks like to you when we do it. And God, we thank you that you've sent your son to die on the cross for us and given us an opportunity to have communion with you, to have fellowship with you, to have a relationship with you. And that you've saved us from our sins and we can choose to be obedient rather than live a life of sin and sorrow. Amen.